Well, today we continue in our consecutive expository series in the book of Mark. Yes, the Gospel of Mark. And now we're finally in the last third of the book. We're in the third major section. Remember, there was the first part focusing on the identity of Jesus. And then there was the, what we sometimes call the Markin hinge. And then holding things together, the swing point. And then now the last part, the last third focuses more on the mission of Jesus. And he has indeed come to the last week of his life. And this whole section focuses on the last seven days of the life of Jesus, the Messiah. It is now Tuesday morning of Passion Week. Having rode in on Palm Sunday, and then having visited the temple and cleaned house, Jesus is back again in the temple. Our scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through chapter 12, verse 12. You can follow along uh, on the screen or in your Bibles, devices, whatever way. I'll do a little of both probably. So, and they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you what authority, by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why didn't you believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. 
What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. And they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand and remain forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit that you have sent to illumine all truth to us. Lord, we are helpless without you. We are blind. We have hearts that are not in step and under your authority. Lord, we need you to teach us today and help us grow and, and Lord, love and cherish your work and your ways and your kingdom. Father, let everything that you do be marvelous in our eyes. Father, we look to you now. Lord Jesus, we look to you. Holy Spirit, we depend upon you. We pray this now and ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's passage uh, basically connects both something that precedes it and what is about to follow. Remember Jesus last week we saw demonstrated remarkable authority in clearing the temple of all the corrupt money changers and sellers in the court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations. And it had become so corrupted. Now, he, the scene turns. Jesus comes, and in one sense, from their perspective, the rulers of the temple... Jesus returns to the scene of the crime he committed the day before. Normally you don't do that if you're trying to get away. Jesus wasn't trying to get away. He returns to the scene of the crime and he's confronted by a bunch of religious leaders who challenge him about his authority and who gave him the right to do what he did in the temple the day before. Wrecking the place. Casting out, blocking things, telling people they couldn't go through. Today's episode is the first in a series of six episodes. Six accounts that Mark records of Jesus' confrontation with the religious establishment. This is just the first of them. There's going to be five more that are going to represent a showdown or throwdown, whichever word you want to use, between Jesus and the temple establishment. Now, the outline today, once again, is pretty simple. Three Ps, PPP. It's just easy as can be. Hey, I'm a poet and I don't even know it. Um, The problem, the parable, and the picture. There's a problem here. There is 
a parable, a story told that's very important. And there's also a beautiful picture, an image that tells us how the world is going to be changed through God's appointed son. It's going to become a world in which the rock not cut from hands is going to grow until it fills the whole earth. So that is an image and a picture to see indeed. All right, let's look at the problem. That's basically verse 27 of chapter 11 through verse 33. Now, we don't know, let me get ready here. We don't know precisely where Jesus was walking in the temple. If we can have our first uh, temple um, slide there. By the way, uh, that's, that, of course, is, 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 you know, obviously it's a sketch or a painting or draw whatever. Um, it's not real. But that's probably something of like what the temple looked like. This is the rest of Jerusalem. This is the Mount of Olives over here. Jesus would have come down and into the temple. Now, where in the temple? Next slide, please. We don't know where he was. Was he walking around in the uh, court of the Gentiles here or here? Or maybe was he over here at what's known as the Royal Stoa, uh, colon, huge colonnades, massive uh, covering. The, there was colonnades all the way around the walls, but this one was the biggest of them. Maybe he was over here. But I think more likely he was probably right in this area, what it was known as Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch. And this area was probably pretty close to where the original Solomonic Temple the original Temple of Solomon would have been in this area. Now, of course, everything has changed. This is the Herod's um, temple. But that Jesus would have been very, would have been a likely place. And one of the reasons why I say that is because in Solomon's building of the temple, it's recorded that there was a stone, a cornerstone that was thrown aside and rejected, but was later brought back into play. And I think that Jesus would have been so ironic in his planning. Everything else was to a T. He had orchestrated everything. And I don't think that he didn't do it here as well. We don't know for sure. But that's a good guess. That's, my, that's where I'd put my bet if I was a betting man, so to speak. All right. So we don't know where exactly he was in the temple. But he was walking around. And there was this group of chief priests... Pharisees and elders. And you know what? What they all have in common? They were probably all Sanhedrin. They were all a part of this corrupt machine, political, spiritual machine that was known as the Sanhedrin. The 70. They were all likely had some role in the Sanhedrin. And they found Jesus walking in the temple. And they confronted him and challenged him on his authorization to do what he did the day before. Now you you need to understand something. In that day, nothing happened unless it happened in the temple or with the temple's authorization. You couldn't do anything. Remember earlier in Jesus' ministry... 
There was questioning of his authority up in the Galilee. And they kept saying, "Why? Are, by whose authority are you doing these things? Basically, hey, you haven't gone through us. You haven't got a license. Who are you? They were saying, in essence, who do you think you are, Jesus? Where's your license? Show us. Show us how this was approved by the temple authority structure. Who authorized you to do these things? Well, essentially, Jesus' reply to them was another question. They were asking the questions they thought. They were in control. But Jesus decided, said, I'll answer your question with a question. And here it was, essentially. What he, the bottom line of what he was saying is, who authorized John, the baptizer? Who gave him authority to do what he did? Crickets, crickets. And then they got together and they started thinking, man, what are we going to do? And the text tells us what the problem was. If they said he was from God, then Jesus would say, why didn't you listen to him? And if they said, well, um, you know, no, he wasn't from God. They knew the people believed he was a prophet. And they would be in trouble with the people. And so they were stuck. They were caught in their own trap. They were the ones trapped in their own trap. And so they said, "Uh, we don't know. Beats us. Now Jesus knew they were ball-faced liars. He knew they were lying. And he said, neither will I answer your question. In other words, tit for tat. Let's do tit for tat on this. You didn't answer mine? I'm not going to answer yours. So, now, Jesus was wise not to say any more. There's a proverb, Proverbs 23, 9. It goes like this. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. And Jesus said, I'm not answering you. Because you've got your mind made up and I'm not going to confuse you with the facts because you won't believe me anyway. I'm not going to give you something else to try and go about your evil designs. Nothing he said Jesus knew would change their minds. They were set in stone. And so, as the scripture says, answer not a fool according to his folly. Now, this question about authority, folks, is the same one then and now. The struggle with authority, who's in charge, who should be obeyed, who should be followed, who should be responded to, is the same then with the leaders and the people then and Jesus. And it's the same still today, 2,000 years later. The real simple question is, in your and my life, no matter where you are, who you are, whether you call yourself a Christian or whether you don't, will we submit to the authority of Jesus in our lives? 
will you say, no, I will not have this man over me. I don't like what Jesus says. There are plenty of unbelievers that are not concerned about the evidence. They simply will not have Jesus' authority over their lives and tell them what they can do with their bodies and what they can do with their things. And they say, no. You have no authorization here. But you know what? We in the body of Christ, we better not cast too many stones because we live in a glass house. How many times have we known what Jesus wanted us to do? And we basically said, no, I'm not authorizing that. I'm authorizing my plan. I'm going to do what I want to do. Because your plan sounds scary, Jesus. I like mine. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to be in control. How many times have you and I done that, brothers and sisters in Christ? Will we submit? Will we trust? Young people, when Jesus says there are things that you should do and not do with your sexual life, there are boundaries Boundaries put there by his authorization and with his love and protection. And when you go beyond that, any of us, we are flying in the face of Jesus and what he has authorized and told us to do. There's so many ways that we sometimes simply say, no, I'm simply going to do it my way. Now the parable is in verses 1 through 8, actually 1 through 12, but the second, I'm going to divide it into two parts. The next part is the parable 1 through 8. Unlike many of Jesus' parables, the meaning of this one was quite plain. This one was not in any way, remember Jesus did tell some parables so that people wouldn't understand. Because he knew they weren't going to listen, they already had hardened their hearts, he didn't try to. He basically said, I'm I'm doing this for you guys, for my disciples. But here, this one is crystal clear. The religious establishment got zinged, and they knew it. And they were hot. With this parable, Jesus deliberately provoked his enemies to greater opposition against him. Did you know that? He was literally going after them. You're talking about underdog. Here's this whole giant religious establishment and Jesus is taking it on mano a mano. He purposely, purposefully picked the fight with the most powerful religious establishment of his day. He basically went up and with this parable as he told it that we read, he kicked sand in the face of these religious leaders. And they were livid. We see how it ended in verse 12. But they couldn't, they knew he was popular and they couldn't get their hands on him. But they wanted to. They wanted to strangle the life out of him at that point if they could. These religious scholars were very familiar, however, with their Bible. 
And they knew about a parable that was kind of interestingly similar to this one. It's in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Listen. You heard the parable already as Jesus told it. Now listen to this and see if you see the linkage. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing of my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it off, cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in its midst, in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, literally, rotten grapes. Stinking grapes is what the Hebrew says. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it, it yield to yield grapes. Why did it yield wild or rotten grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. And I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. Now, Jesus clearly borrowed imagery from this parable, from Isaiah. And he borrowed this par- the, the idea again. And his parable is about the wicked vine dressers. That's the difference. In the, in the Isaiah account, it's the, vineyard, it's the people of Israel as a whole. This Jesus targets and scopes down to the wicked vine dressers. In other words, the temple cult and establishment. This judgment is not directed at the vineyard, but at the vine dressers. It's very important that you see the difference. But yet, there's a lot of the same thing going on there. Jesus' wicked vine dresser story was, of course, as we read, a showstopper. Especially when the owner's only son was abused and killed. Why would anybody do such a thing? Why in the world would someone kill the owner's only son? The naked truth was the vine dressers wanted the vineyard and all of its profits, all of its fruit for themselves. God's servants and the son threatened the leadership positions, their leadership positions and their monetary profits. You start taking someone's leadership away from them and you take away their profits, people are going to get very, very upset. These outsiders put the power structures of the temple in jeopardy. And simply put, they wanted to play God. They wanted to be God. 
They wanted to be their own authorities. Boy, does that have a familiar ring to it. Again, look around. People trying to play God. In a few days, these malevolent listeners would drag Jesus before their own authorities and they would condemn him. And true to the parable's prediction, they would arrange for his death to be where? Inside the city? No. Outside the city. Outside of the vineyard. Outside of the gates where there is nothing but death and decay. Separation from the communion of Israel. Cut off like the scapegoat sent into the wilderness. Oh, my friends, fallen nature is not simply indifference to God. A lot of people think, you know, I'm all right. Jesus and I, we're okay. You know, I'm okay with him. He's okay with me. Oh, my friend, that's close to something blasphemous. Sinful nature is not simply indifferent to God. It wants to overthrow him. If it could, it can't, but if it could, human hearts are so sinful that at times if you were honest with yourself, and I've had to admit it's true in my heart, I'd pull God from his throne to put me in his place so that I will be king of my life. Campus Crusade for Christ, we used to have this little, little illustration of sitting on the throne of your own life. Now Jesus comes to take that throne, but we want to get back on it. We like to be on the throne. We like to be in that place of enthronement. Listen to Psalm 2, 1 through 3. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who is that? Jesus, the son of David, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. We're going to be free as determined by me. You see, it's vaunting, arrogance, pride. You see, the reason why so many things can't be fixed yet, one day there will be, Jesus is going to take care of that. But the reason why so many things don't get fixed is because we don't have a biblical anthropology. We don't understand how human hearts really are and how sinful they are. And when you do not take that into account, you are not going to solve all kind of problems across the board, be they economic, be they political, be they spiritual, be they educational, because you're always starting from the wrong premise. The problem, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of your and my and other people's sinful hearts. But there's time to pull the nose up and shine a little bit of light 
and get a glimpse of something beautiful. There's the picture in verses 9 through 12. Jesus provides an answer to the parable. And what is his answer? The owners will destroy, the owner, meaning God, will destroy those who refused his son. Kiss the son, unless he be angry and you perish in the way. They had their opportunity. They weren't about to kiss the son. And they were going to be destroyed and thrown down. But then there is this, this hidden piece of encouragement and hope in the text. Now we come to one of the most central messianic pictures of the Bible, the cornerstone. In ancient times, in masonry, the cornerstone was the first stone laid in the foundation of a building from which all the other stones got their alignment. And that stone had to be perfect, near perfect, in order, because if anything was off in any direction, the whole building would be out of plumb and would not be what they were looking for. The picture here, I think we have a quick one here. This is the cornerstone. Look at this. This thing is massive. I would probably, if I was standing there, I'd be about right there in head high. This is in Jerusalem on the southwest corner of the temple, of the, well, what was, what was the temple. Everything above it was literally thrown down. The rocks are all around here and where they were cast down by the Romans in AD 70. But this is the cornerstone and everything else had to align with it. The picture of Jesus as the cornerstone rejected by the builders appears first of all in Psalm 118, 22 through 23. But you know where that is in your, in your passage today? That's in these words. Have you not read? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's that quote from Psalm 118, 22 through 23. Jesus pronounced to them and to us. You see, the rejection of the Son is tragic for Jesus, but you know what it is? It's also glorious for us. It is a glorious reversal. It is one of those many things in the Bible where when it looks the worst and out of the darkness, post-tenorbus lux comes light. God brings revivals when? When everything's going great? No, when we're about at the last end, when it looks like there is no hope, that's when the God of hope moves out and moves in and is on the prowl. Aslan is on the prowl. That's when it happened, and that's what was about to happen. And Jesus was telling the believers in his day, listen, this is going to change everything. I am going to become the new cornerstone for what God is doing. God takes what man rejects and makes it the cornerstone for the construction of a whole new world. You remember that multi-metallic image in Daniel, in the prophecy, of the, it struck the, the multi-metallic image, this rock, not brought about by human hands, cut without human hands, and it smashed that entire image, and it became itself a mountain that filled the whole earth. Jesus is saying, I'm the cornerstone of that, and I am the one 
that will also one day bring that reality. I love this, um, this uh, song called Cornerstone. Matter of fact, we're going, to hear, we're going to get to sing in a few moments, Cornerstone, another version. But this is, this is uh, another version that I found. It, it's a lot of fun. I hope we can do it sometime as either the uh, uh, quartet or the choir or somebody. But uh, listen to the words. It's by Cornerstone by Sean Kitchener. Oh, the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone for a whole new world. A grain of wheat may be knocked to the ground and suffer through the winter's cold only to rise up again and bear its seed a thousandfold. Never can our journey fail. A little child will lead the way whose eyes are filled with a shining light to whom the night is as bright as day. The love that rolls the stone away gives us life that we may sing. Grave, where is thy victory? Death, oh death, where is thy sting? Oh, the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone for a whole new world. You know, when that rock, who is Jesus, that rock, cut without hands, became the cornerstone. When we acknowledge the rock who is Christ, we discover not a monstrous and crushing weight like happened in the multi-metallic image, but instead a precious cornerstone, a sure and certain foundation no matter what happens to us in our lives. As Isaiah 28, 16 said, in whom the one who trusts will never be panicked. That's the original in the Hebrew. Not not dismayed, panicked. In other words, Jesus is the antidote to all our fears. Yours and mine. No matter what happens, he, those of us who trust in him, will not ever have a reason to be afraid. Oh, we might, but we have no reason to if we could hold on and know and believe the truth. And Jesus invites us to that. I love the song that, that the, uh, we sang in the second hymn. The uh, song of dedication, I mean, uh, of uh, adoration. In Christ alone. Just, uh, I mean, I, I almost know it, but I'm going to just, just so I don't flub it up, I'm going to bring it up so that I'll be able to um, say I will. There we go. Think, listen to this. Here's why we don't have to be panicked. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Jesus was telling his people then and he's telling you and me today, he's the cornerstone. He's the safe foundation. And if you believe in him and trust in him, you don't have to panic. Come what may. Come what may. Is Jesus Christ your cornerstone? Is he beautiful in your eyes? Let's pray.
Oh, Father, thank you for giving us a beautiful Savior. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Father, he is the foundation upon which no man can lay except him. He is the foundation of a new world that he is bringing. And one day will bring in its finality. Until then, give us faith. Give us hope. Joy and peace in believing. We pray this now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.